0: A quick warning. This episode has language that listeners may find offensive. Okay, I'm going to let these cars pass me so I can drive slow. So this is, yeah, this is Pinpoint. Pinpoint, Georgia is a tiny place just about a mile from end to end, and it's easy to miss from the highway hidden by all the marshes and oak trees. Oh, man, I love the Spanish moss. I do love Spanish moss, but that's not why I was there. Man, they got oh, they got a little turnout. Yep, see birthplace, the Supreme Court. I want to take a picture of that real quick. In Pinpoint, Clarence Thomas's family ties still run deep. Smell, you can smell the, the salt water. But when I visited there a couple months ago, nobody was all that excited to talk about him. Mr. Haynes? Hello? Some folks didn't answer their doors, but a few did speak with me in their front yards. Mr. Family? That's me. Hey, do you remember when I called you last week? Yeah, you called me last week. I, if you're just are willing to talk about the and, and
1: growing up out here, first of all, I don't want to talk about Clarence at all.
0: I totally get that. To call Clarence Thomas polarizing is an understatement. In 30 plus years on the Supreme Court, he's pulled the country to the right on everything from voting and gun rights to abortion. And then there's the matter of affirmative action, which he benefited from, but now seems hell bent on striking down. And oh, by the way, his wife, Jenny, she tried to overturn the 2020 election. So yeah, I could understand why folks didn't want to talk about it. Excuse me. Hey, how y'all doing? Does does this family sell up over there? Who? Yeah. That's not it. Oh, that's not their house? No. Finally, somebody tipped me off to another address. It was a few miles north of Pinpoint in the bigger city of Savannah. I wasn't expecting much when I pulled up on this narrow tree-lined street, but the sound of wind chimes did put me at ease. Give it a shot. I was looking at a white, one-story home with a screened-in porch. On the front door was a sticker. Covid-19 vaccine. I got it. Hello. I think I got the wrong house. Uh, my name is Joel Anderson. I'm a reporter.
2: Yeah. Look, let me go ahead.
0: Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. All
2: right. Graham,
0: As I was invited in, I could hear the sound of MSNBC coming from inside. Hey, Miss Williams, how you doing? I'm so sorry to bother you. I didn't expect to get in, so, you know. I am a reporter, I gotta be honest. I'm working on a, a documentary about your son's life.
3: Well, when I answered, I think yeah, you I got do. the wrong house.
0: It was not the wrong house. And the woman who lived there actually seemed tickled that I showed up. Um, So you go by Miss 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 Leola, Miss Williams? What do you go by? Leola. Leola? I'm gonna have to call you Miss Leola. I can't call you by yeah, your first name. My kids called me
3: Grandma, Grammy.
0: <laughs> Clarence Thomas's mother, Leola Williams, is 94 years old, but still incredibly sharp. As we talked, Miss Leola sat in a recliner in a corner of her den with the curtains closed. The room was painted turquoise. So you've lived in Savannah, or Pinpoint basically all your life now, huh? I was born in Liberty County.
3: And I was taken to pinpoint, okay. and that's where my kids
0: were born. Miss Leola's two-bedroom home is where her son's journey to the Supreme Court got started. And while I didn't realize it at the time, that house in Savannah was about to become national news. Two weeks after I showed up, ProPublica reported that the house is now owned by Harlan Crow. He's a right-wing mega-donor who's taken Clarence Thomas on a bunch of lavish trips and paid for his grandnephew's school tuition. Gifts that Thomas didn't disclose. Crow says he wants to turn Miss Leola's house into a historic site someday. But for now, it's a mother's shrine to her family and to her son's remarkable career. And this is his first wife. Oh, yeah, you got all the Supreme Court pictures. Man, that was, Yeah, man, you've got a lot of history in here, Miss Leola. Yep. There's a graduation picture, a picture of them together greeting First Lady Barbara Bush. And then there's a family shot but Clarence isn't in that one. He was tied up in Washington, D.C.
3: And you see this picture up here? When we was at my cousin's house in, in Pinpoint, and the vote came down, we was all in there, we were praying.
0: On the day this picture was taken in 1991, Clarence Thomas's family members weren't the only ones in suspense. Nobody knew for certain if he would make it to the Supreme Court.
1: The hearing will come to order. Good morning, Judge.
0: Mr. Chairman,
4: as excruciatingly difficult as the last two weeks have been, I welcome the opportunity to clear my name today.
0: Led by then Senator Joe Biden, Thomas's confirmation hearing riveted the country and it revealed fault lines around race and gender that we're still grappling with today.
3: My name is Anita F. Hill, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. In 1981, I was introduced to now Judge Thomas by a mutual friend. And he asked if I would be interested in working with him. What happened next and telling the world about it are the two most difficult experiences of my life.
0: I remember watching those hearings in 1991 when I was 13 years old. I didn't really understand what I was seeing and I didn't know much about Clarence Thomas or where he came from, but I knew enough to recognize that parts of his biography felt familiar. Both of us grew up in the South and went to Catholic schools. Both of us felt drawn to the fiery rhetoric of black nationalism. And both of us had white folks tell us that we were affirmative action cases, that we didn't belong that we hadn't earned our place. But at some point, the two of us started to see the world very differently. And I've always wanted to figure out why. This is Slow Burn, season eight, Becoming Justice Thomas, I'm your host, Joel Anderson. Over the next four episodes, you'll learn about how a black man from rural Georgia became one of America's most powerful people and how he brought the rest of us along with him, whether we like it or not. How did Clarence Thomas transform from a college radical to a conservative icon? What did it take for him to land on the doorstep of the Supreme Court and get confirmed for life? And who is Justice Thomas? really.
1: So look, when I talk about Clarence Thomas, there are going to be two groups of listeners, and neither one are going to like what I say. So my question to you is, why am I doing this interview?
0: This is episode one, America's Blackest Child.
5: Clarence Thomas was born in the small community of Pinpoint, Georgia.
1: He brings to the court an understanding of poverty. He's one who's experienced it firsthand. Not a single member of the
3: Senate knows what Clarence Thomas knows about being poor and black in America.
0: Clarence Thomas didn't say much about his judicial philosophy during his 1991 confirmation hearing. Instead... He talked about the small coastal town where he grew up. His advisors called it the Pinpoint Strategy.
4: My earliest memories are those of Pinpoint, Georgia, a life far removed in space and time from this room, this day, and this moment.
0: Pinpoint was settled in the late 19th century by formerly enslaved people known as Geechies or Gullahs. Those communities lived in relative isolation from white people. That allowed them to preserve their cultural ties to West Africa, including their English-based Creole language. Most people who lived in Pinpoint worked on the water, picking crabs or shucking oysters. It was a simple life, one that Thomas idealized in that 1991 hearing.
4: As kids, we caught minnows in the creeks, fiddler crabs in the marshes. It was a world so vastly different from all this.
0: Life at the water's edge was idyllic in many ways, but Thomas's mother Leola Williams told me her childhood in the nineteen thirties was marked by constant reminders that she was living in the Jim Crow South.
3: They were saying that like the Klux clangs was all over mm-hmm. pinpoint, they burned a cross down. And then if we miss our school bus, we had to hide under the bridge. To walk to school, if you see a car coming, we got to hide.
0: In the 1940s, Miss Leola became a teenage mother to a daughter and two sons. Clarence was the middle child. After her husband abandoned them, she raised the kids in what Thomas has called a shanty, with no bathroom and no electricity except for a single light in the living room. They used newspapers to plug holes in the walls during the winter. In the fall of 1954, when Clarence was six, his younger brother and a cousin were playing with matches and accidentally burned down the family home. Their little shanty was destroyed. So was everything inside. Leola Williams was forced to move into a one-room tenement in Savannah. She brought along Clarence and his brother while her daughter stayed in pinpoint with an aunt. Miss Leola worked as a maid, but only earned about $10 a week. So in the summer of 1955, she went to her father, Myers Anderson, to ask for help. I cried and cried because he
3: told me no. And I was thinking all kind of things about my daddy then. At that point, her stepmother, Christine, made a proposal. And she said that, um, I want to ask you something. She used to talk so low and sweet. And she said, I want the boys still with me. All the time.
0: I said, okay, mother. The boys showed up at Myers and Christine Anderson's door a few days later.
4: Imagine, if you will, two little boys with all their belongings in two grocery bags.
0: Throughout his confirmation hearing, Thomas and his supporters focused on poverty as the defining characteristic of his childhood. But in reality, this was the decisive moment, the day he left his poor upbringing behind. Suddenly, this child from Pinpoint with his Geechee accent was living in a middle-class home with new appliances, hot water, and indoor plumbing. This is the house Miss Leola lives in now, the one I visited, with the screened-in porch and the photos of a Supreme Court justice covering the walls. Back in the 1950s, that house was Myers-Anderson's domain. Clarence called his grandfather Daddy, and his autobiography is titled My Grandfather's Son. Thomas declined our interview request, but you'll hear from him in previous interviews like this one from 2008.
4: He was the greatest man I've ever known. You know, he did the right thing when it was easy to do the wrong thing.
0: Myers Anderson had only a third grade education and he could barely read. But he was a leader in the local NAACP and a successful entrepreneur, providing fuel, wood, ice and coal to black families across Savannah.
5: His grandfather actually delivered coal to my grandmother. This is Lester Johnson, one of Clarence Thomas' friends from Savannah. He was just a matter-of-fact kind of guy. You know, I'm here with the coal, where you want me to put it, and I need my money. Myers-Anderson could be harsh to his family, to the point of
0: being cruel. It was different with Clarence's grandmother, Christine, who he called Teenie. Before school, she fixed the boys bacon, sausage, eggs, and grits, and she let them watch TV after their grandfather went to sleep.
3: That woman up there did the work. She the one made their clothes.
0: So she, she she has a lot of respect. Like you said, she deserves a lot of credit. Oh,
3: she did, and more. And that's what I always tell Clarence. He always talked about Daddy, but that lady the
0: one. She's the one. She is the one. The man Clarence called Daddy never praised his grandchildren or hugged them, The morning they moved in, he told the boys, the damn vacation is over.
5: Our parents and grandparents wanted us to be realist. You know, this is a tough society that we brought you into. We're going to teach you how to navigate through it. And the only way we're going to be able to do that, we got to be tough on you.
0: Anderson was an unrelenting taskmaster. During the summers, He put Clarence and his brother to work on the family farm in nearby Liberty County. When they weren't toiling away, he made sure they took advantage of all the educational opportunities that he'd been denied as a child.
4: When the Savannah Public Library finally desegregated, his point was that we were obligated to use it.
3: He would get his books, and the lady that was running the library, he would sit in the corner and she said she would watch him to see if he'd go read all them books. And he'd sit right there all day long.
0: Myers Anderson had converted to Catholicism and insisted on sending his boys to Catholic school.
3: And this was the um, convent, this building here. Oh, this was a convent. That's where the sisters that taught at the school lived.
0: Okay. So, yeah, Miss Charlie May. so yeah, we're standing outside the, the St. Benedict of Moore Catholic Church. This is where you went to school and church, right? Right. This is Charlie Mae Garrett. She went to school with Clarence Thomas and offered to show me around. That
3: rectory for two priests, that building right there, two-story.
0: You know, I had to clean a rectory when I went to Catholic school. That was part of my work study, <laughs> You're playing cleaning the... And that's how I found that out. Did you know, I didn't realize priests drink
3: alcohol and oh like they had yes. me cleaning that up. Honestly. And smoke. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Outrageous. Oh, you can walk in? I don't
0: know. All 400 students at Clarence's school were black, but the teachers were white Franciscan nuns. In addition to the rigorous curriculum, the sisters taught them that segregation was immoral. Those progressive views weren't welcome in most of white Savannah. Many people in the community referred to them derisively as "nigger nuns." Did you have any classes with him? All of my classes was with him. Oh, all of them. Clarence excelled in middle school. He was an altar boy and became a straight-A student by the time he was in eighth grade. Okay. But
3: the middle picture down there.
0: The middle picture down there? On the there. bottom. Mm-hmm. That's
3: the graduation class, St. Benedict Moore
0: Okay. And can where you spot he? him? Is he second from the left?
3: Yep, that's him.
0: He looks like young Clarence Thomas. <laughs> and you can tell he's
3: not... Tall yes. Because he's on the first row right after the short girls.
0: So. Oh, you're right behind you. He's right behind you. Mm-hmm.
5: All through school, Clarence was an easy target for schoolyard bullies. I would call him very nerdy looking. Nobody was out there, you know, I want to be like Clarence Thomas, you know? Lester Johnson was a few years behind Clarence at their all black school. When you tease somebody, you tease them on something that is a little unusual about them. Right? So because I was so short, you know, I was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, man. Dark-skinned blacks would call things like, you so black, you blue. Clarence's classmates had a special nickname for him, ABC, America's Blackest Child. He was dark complexion. And, of course, with Justice Thomas's case, they teased him about his peasy hair and them lips, you know, because of slavery and because of segregation, they instilled in us the desire to separate among our pigmentation. So the lighter complexion you were, the closer you were to whites, the better you were.
0: Everyone in school thought the America's blackest child thing was hilarious. But Clarence wasn't laughing. He buried his head in his books and started pondering his future career. Clarence worked at the school newspaper and thought about becoming a journalist. But when he was 15, he visited a seminary
5: and decided he'd been called to walk a different path. He was going to become a Catholic priest. All of the nuns would always come in and say, you all need to be like Clarence Thomas. And of course we would sit there and say, oh, here we go again. And what they were saying was, we need more of you to consider becoming a priest. We don't have any black priests. Clarence Thomas is going to be our first, but we need more than one.
0: Clarence's grandfather loved the idea of his grandson making history in Savannah. Myers Anderson just told him that once he committed to the priesthood, he wasn't allowed to quit. And then he added, don't shame me and don't shame our race. Clarence would be leaving the comfort of his all-black school for Georgia Seminary that had never admitted a black student. A yearbook photo shows him surrounded by white faces, some smirking. He's in the back, staring straight ahead, and he isn't smiling. The
4: difficulty was
0: things hadn't been desegregated
4: yet. So you were again crossing these racial barriers. So you had that challenge.
0: The school's director told Clarence to get rid of his Geechee Gullah dialect so he wouldn't be thought of as inferior. Every night after lights out, someone would yell, Smile, Clarence, so we can see you. Clarence channeled his anger into his schoolwork. He won a Latin contest, claiming as his prize a statuette of St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes. Twice, he left the statue on his dresser only to have someone break off the head. Each time, he glued it back together, as if to say that he couldn't be broken. Despite those insults, Clarence wasn't going to walk away. He actually encouraged some of his old schoolmates
5: to follow in his footsteps. I said, look, hold on for a second, man. Look, just answer this question for me. I understand that you can't have a girlfriend if you're at the seminary. Just answer that for me. He said, he said, well, no, we can't have a girlfriend, but you know, we get to come home on the weekend. And I said, look, man, I'm just noticing these young girls. Thank God for you, but. I'm not ready to do that, man. Miss
0: Charlie May thinks Clarence wasn't ready for the priesthood either. She believes he had other aims. I know that he wanted a better education. See, he had a political
3: ambition from a very young person. Did you know it at the time? Yeah, I know he was ambitious. Yeah. I I didn't know he wanted to go all the way to the Supreme Court, but I know he he wanted to get from A to Z.
0: For Clarence Thomas... Getting from A to Z had started with leaving pinpoint. Studying to be a priest seemed like the next big step, and for a while, it felt like it was worth it, no matter the hardships. But that was all about to change. In 1967, Clarence Thomas was well on his way to becoming Savannah's first black priest, He'd taken the initial step as a high schooler in Georgia. Now, he headed off to the rolling hills of northwest Missouri to continue his religious
2: education at Conception Seminary. We met freshman year, first day of of school. We hooked up as buddies pretty quickly. That's Tom
0: O'Brien. He came to the seminary from a Catholic school in Kansas City. He was drawn to his doormate from Savannah right away.
2: I, I could tell he was a good guy. I could tell he was a funny guy. And plus he had such a distinctive laugh. It would start in the, in the bowels of a cave and, and just build and roar. It, I don't know that I can duplicate it. It just rolled out like that and lasted about 10 seconds. I'll be honest. Tom's impression, it's not that great. But he isn't wrong.
0: Clarence Thomas's laugh It's kind of wild. It really is good to be me. It really
5: is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That belly laugh got Clarence noticed at conception. But the truth was, he would have stood out no matter what. He was one of just four black students in a freshman class of 64.
2: Had I ever had a black friend before Clarence? No. I was oblivious, man. But uh, things happened that made it apparent that we were living and had been living two different lives.
0: One weekend, Tom and Clarence made plans to meet up with some women from another college, an early sign that their commitment to the priesthood wasn't exactly rock solid. But that night, both of their dates ended up falling through. Instead, they drove together to Kansas. Across the state line, it was legal for 18-year-olds to drink, so that was the new plan. Go to Shaky's Pizza in Overland Park and knock back a few.
2: And as early as it was, we were able to get a booth. And so we ordered a pitcher of beer, a buck and a quarter.
0: It wasn't a complicated order, but they waited and
2: waited. And that pitcher, it never came. And 20 minutes went by, and uh, the manager came over with a, a large man and said, uh, we've had complaints about you guys. You've been too loud. Tom was totally confused. He said, you got the wrong table, it's not us. I said, no, this is the right table. A bunch of complaints, you've been too loud, you all need to leave. And I, so I'm trying to make a case that he's got the wrong table. And Clarence grabbed my arm and said, man, it ain't the volume. The problem that
0: night was where they'd gone out. Overland Park was an upper-class, extremely segregated
2: suburb of Kansas City. I'd been to shakies plenty of times. And I never noticed that the place was all white and then realized the world I lived in because he said, it was the first thing I noticed that I was the only black guy in there. I remember hurting and being embarrassed for Clarence because we were getting tossed because of the color of his skin. And I, I, was, I was stunned.
0: So how, did, how did he handle it? Like, what was his um, demeanor?
2: Well, He handled it as though it was no surprise. In fact, he said he was surprised it took that long.
0: Clarence had tried his best to blend in, but by the end of the first semester, he wanted to give up on Conception Seminary and on his ambition to become Savannah's first black priest. That goal didn't just belong to him, though. It was his grandfather's dream, too. And Clarence was desperate not to disappoint him. So that was it. He was going to stick it out. And he did for a little while longer.
2: Direct from our newsroom until the
0: evening of April 4th, 1968.
2: News evening news with Walter Cronkite. There's been an incident. Need to come downstairs and s- check the TV out. So we all, there were 70 of us down there.
5: Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin for a well-dressed young white man seen... When
0: Clarence heard that Martin Luther King had been killed, he felt totally gutted. King's words had given voice to his pain, helping him make sense of the anguish that comes with being black in America. But on the night of April 4th, he got another lesson
2: from one of his white classmates. Coming up the stairs from listening to the, the news about King's assassination, somebody said something about being glad it happened
0: in his memoir Thomas wrote that he heard his classmate call Martin Luther King a son of a bitch a short time later Clarence confided in his good friend Tom
2: uh, his room was right across the hall and he came over and said, Hey, can I can I talk to you he said I'm not coming back next year and then he told me why
0: for Clarence that was the end of his time at seminary his classmates' words crystallized everything about the isolation he'd been feeling and the insidiousness of racism.
2: I remember some real disillusionment on his part. He, he told me, he said, I, I thought this was a place, maybe, that that couldn't happen, that couldn't be, but not so.
0: Clarence didn't go home to Georgia right away. The week after King's assassination, he headed back toward Kansas City. This time, he got a ride with one of his black classmates. And they weren't going to the suburbs.
5: I am in the intersection of 12th and Oak, where the crowd has gathered, mainly gathered, on the lawn and the steps at City Hall, expecting Mayor Davis to come out.
0: On April 9th, the day of Martin Luther King's funeral, thousands of students took to the streets on the Missouri side of Kansas City. In his autobiography, Thomas wrote about marching in King's honor. He said it was his first civil rights protest and described how powerful it felt to chant and sing alongside people who were just as outraged as he was. But in America, in 1968, that outrage was starting to boil over.
1: Fire Chief Halloran reports that fires are raging out of control in the area bounded by 36th and Prospect through 39th and Prospect.
0: The march on April 9th did start out peaceful, but then the police fired tear gas into the crowd, and Kansas City descended into four days of chaos.
2: 15 persons injured in shooting incidents, 75 fires and nearly 200 businesses looted. Kansas
4: City's General Hospital received victims of the violence throughout the night. Four were dead on arrival. One of these was a 12-year-old boy.
0: There were riots all over the U.S. after King's assassination. The uprising in Kansas City was one of the largest. It's unclear if Clarence Thomas got caught up in the violence. That's because the story he told in his autobiography left out the riot completely. He wrote that on the streets of Kansas City, he felt the kind of fulfillment that eluded him in the seminary, a sense that this fight for social justice was where he belonged. After he left Missouri, Clarence kept in touch with his friend Tom O'Brien, In handwritten letters, they talked about their personal lives, politics, and the Vietnam War.
2: Both of us had some concern about, you know, we we knew we were squaring up for the draft and going to be draft eligible. Tom has held on to those letters for more than 50 years. And one line still sticks with him. One of the letters, you know, was signed, Power to the People, C.T., We'll be back in a minute. In
0: 1968, Clarence Thomas's life was changing in a bunch of dramatic ways. He'd discovered the power of protest, and he'd abandoned the priesthood. Now, the most formative relationship in his life was about to unravel.
4: I returned home, and was greeted with my grandfather who told me that I needed to find another place to live. So he kicked me out of the house and I was on my own. I was 19 years old.
0: The way he tells the story, his grandfather demanded he leave instantly. He couldn't stand to have a quitter under his roof. Clarence spent that tumultuous summer of 1968 living in his mother Leola's apartment, feeling angry and alone. To find himself, he'd head north to a small Catholic college, in New England, that promised to cover most of his tuition. Holy
3: Cross, Holy Cross, of
5: Some people still think of a college as a collection of buildings. We think of a college as a community of people, all kinds of people.
1: So Holy Cross... It was all white people. It was the type of place that was white and walled in. Why do I want to go here? That's Eddie Jenkins. In 1968, he was a top high school football
0: recruit from New York City. He had dozens of offers from places like Boston College, Georgetown, and Florida A&M. Eddie's father was pushing for him to go to Holy Cross, but it was near the bottom of his list, an all-male school that wasn't exactly a football powerhouse
1: in cold and dreary Worcester, Massachusetts. Isolated on a hill with wind coming every day at you, and no women on campus. And that's where you decided to go to school, huh? That's where (laughs) my father said I was going to school. And when I told him there were no women on campus, he said, perfect. Eddie was an ideal
0: candidate for Holy Cross, a good student from a Catholic high school who wanted to earn a law degree. And he appreciated the school's earnest recruiting pitch, even when one of the football coaches made a
1: very clumsy sales attempt. He said you know, you niggers are going to like it here. And he meant Negroes, or he said Negroes, but in his voice. So we looked at each other and kind of a nod. Yeah, you know, I think this is where we're going to start. (laughs) This is the place for us to kind of start laying some tracks to make a change in America. After MLK's assassination
0: earlier that year, Holy Cross had scrambled to get more Black students to enroll. Heading up those efforts was Father John Brooks, a white Jesuit priest. When Father Brooks got to Holy Cross in 1963, the school had 2,200 students. Only one of them was Black.
3: He was saying, here's an incredibly talented pool of people. We're missing out by not helping to educate them.
0: That's Diane Brady. She's the author of Fraternity, a book about the Black students who enrolled at Holy Cross in 1968. She spent a lot of time interviewing Father Brooks.
3: And I think he suddenly, you know, realized, well, of course, it's not going to happen unless somebody makes it happen.
0: Do you think that he thought of it as an affirmative action program, even if it wasn't in the mainstream at that moment?
3: Of course. I mean, first of all, he was recruiting them from outside the normal, you know, parameters. He's taking a special initiative, knowing that he had to personally invite and, and support a lot of these students to get them to come to a place like Holy Cross.
0: Holy Cross brought in 20 new Black students in 1968. Those 20 men would account for a little more than 1% of the overall student body. Eddie Jenkins was one of them. Another was sophomore transfer Clarence
1: Thomas. Well, first of all, he says, my name is Coos," And I was like, "Coos." You, you mean like the ball player?
0: Coos was a nickname Clarence had picked up playing basketball in Savannah. It was a reference to Bob Coosey, the point guard for Holy Cross and the NBA champion Boston Celtics, the white point guard.: it. Bob
2: with a great hand of 16 points Mr. Basketball Bob Coosey.
1: Now, now see, I thought that a person, at least a black person, be model themselves out there like Earl Monroe, Walt Frazier. You know, these are New York players that I loved. But Bob Cousy, some white boy from Boston, why would you want to be like that? Well, he thought that he was like skillful in dribbling and handling the ball. I said, okay, all right, let's get down the court and, uh, and see what you could do.
0: Eddie knows a little something about athletic talent. He'd go on to play in the NFL, for the undefeated 1972 Miami Dolphins.
1: The guy had some skill, man. He could go to the hoop a little bit and he was strong and, uh, and he could jump. So yeah, I found that he could play a little ball. Eddie and Clarence bonded quickly. Sometimes the two of them would sit on a hill and talk, and maybe share a bottle of wine. You know, he'd talk about his grandfather raising him and he'd talk about the poverty in pinpoint and and Savannah and his father left him early. So I'd heard all the, you know, the hard life that he had. Their conversations weren't always
0: that serious. Clarence definitely knew how to laugh.
1: (laughs) And, And at first when I heard it, I thought he was kidding. Like no one laughs like that. If you heard that, you know, it's him all the way across campus. Clarence majored in
0: English and made the Dean's list. He also worked up to five and a half hours a day in the dining hall. And when he wasn't studying or working, he was getting more and more immersed in the quest for social justice. Stop the, now.
5: Stop the, now. Stop the, now. the First Amendment of this jive constitution of the United States says we have a right to protest
3: because the fight for black power
4: in
5: this country is indeed a fight to civilize a barbaric country. And bring about the freedom of these people by any means necessary. Okay.
0: <laughs> Clarence stopped going to mass and he pinned a Malcolm X poster to his wall. In his dorm room, he listened to Malcolm's speeches on a record player, memorizing every word.
1: Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the shape of your nose and the shape of your lips? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet?
0: Clarence started dressing like a revolutionary, letting his hair grow out into an unruly afro. He also took to wearing a beret in the style of the Black Panthers.
1: Here was a guy with combat boots and this camouflage uniform on, and he didn't comb his hair. So you would like, how did
0: this guy get into Holy Cross? At Conception Seminary in Missouri, Clarence had kept his outrage to himself. At Holy Cross, he wasn't going to stay quiet. During his first semester on campus, Clarence became a founding member of a new organization,
1: a group where people like him would have a voice. The Black Student Union meeting Every Sunday, I think it was right after dinner, so it would start like 7 p.m. You had to be in your seat because then came the theatrics. The Black
0: Student Union, or BSU, became essential to his academic and social life. Those raucous Sunday meetings were a place where he could say what he wanted and know that he wouldn't be ignored.
1: We had Nation of Islam people. We had Black Panther people. We had people thinking that we're going to build our own nation within a nation. So these different voices would all come out. Eddie remembers a big
0: debate within the BSU about creating a Black corridor, a place in a campus dorm
1: where Black students could live together, apart from their white peers. We want to live within a community where we can feel comfortable, where we can share cultural values, where we can feel, feel safe. Clarence wasn't buying it.
0: He said he actually liked living with his white roommate. And he asked the other members of the Black Student Union, did they really want to do to themselves what the white students had been doing to them?
1: Clarence says, why would we come all the way to Worcester and want to get this good old education from um, Holy Cross and segregate ourselves? Did you read anything into that even then? No, other than he was the great dissenter. You know, we used to call it uh, rhetorical uh, acrobatics and stuff like that. So sometimes you didn't know if he was just trying to sharpen his mind or if he really had a belief and a passion for this. Clarence was the only
0: member of the BSU to vote against the Black Corridor. Once it got established, he did agree to move in so long as he could bring his white roommate. Clarence's contrarian views didn't cause much friction in the Black Student Union. He helped launch one of the group's biggest initiatives, a free breakfast program for local inner-city children, inspired by
1: the Black Panthers. We were feeding kids at six o'clock in the morning, cooking for them, feeding public school children, white and black. So it's hard to kind of knock a person when, even though their words might be a little harsh and antitypical of what a typical black person would feel and think. You know, he was achieving some of the goals and purposes and principles of what, a person who was believing in the Black nation would do. Midway through Clarence's junior year, several members of the Black
0: Student Union got suspended for protesting the Vietnam War. The BSU formally challenged the suspensions, but Holy Cross's board of trustees stood firm. Now, they had to figure out their next move. There were calls to occupy a campus building or even to blow something up. Then, someone suggested another tactic.
1: Why don't we just leave? And it was at that point that people looked at one another and like, you mean for the day? You, you mean for what? For, for, for the week? No, for good.
0: On the morning of December 12th, 1969, nearly all of the 60 or so black students at Holy Cross got together for what they thought was the last time.
1: And so we all got up and folks started getting dressed like it was almost like a graduation, but it was more like a dirge or a funeral because basically we were giving up a lot. And we walked to the student union and it was nice to look out there and see near the front of the pack, Clarence Thomas. He was with us too, in a Black Panther, you know, beret. These young Black
0: men threw down their student ID cards and left campus. Clarence, who was raised never to be a quitter, was going to quit school for the second time. Ultimately, it never got to that point. That's because the walkout worked. Holy Cross dropped the suspensions and the black student union returned to campus. Clarence Thomas and the BSU had won. Just two years earlier, Clarence had never been to a protest. Now, he'd seen the power of direct action. You could imagine an alternate history with this moment cements his belief in radical politics, but that's not what happened.
5: Of our national politicians, the American people want peace, and they want it now.
0: A few months later, in April 1970, Clarence and several friends from the BSU headed to an anti-war demonstration in Boston. It started as a massive peace rally, but as the day went on, that would change.
3: And concerned, and black people are concerned, that it's going to become very necessary for the youth of America, especially
0: white youth, to pick up guns. By nightfall, the peace rally had migrated to Harvard Square and transformed into a bloody conflict between protesters and police. At least 300 people were treated for injuries, and 28 were arrested.
4: There has been stoning, looting, and burning, the traditional ingredients of a city riot. At one point, from a knot of about 30 milling, curious, and seemingly dazed people, a rock was hurled which struck a policeman's helmet.
0: I mentioned something earlier about Thomas's autobiography that it leaves out the violence that surrounded his first ever protest. That was the one in Kansas City following MLK's assassination. But he's told the story of this protest, the one at Harvard Square, over and over again for 50 years. I was
4: angry about things that happened in the past. I was angry about things that were going to happen in the future. And people sort of exploited that.
0: He says he found himself chanting pro-Viet Cong slogans and demanding freedom for Angela Davis and other political prisoners, that he got drunk and disorderly and dodged tear gas and billy clubs, that a police officer shouted loudly in the direction of Clarence and his friends. This must be the nigger contingent from Roxbury. The way he tells it in his memoir and in speeches, that night was a breaking point. All night we
4: were rioting and I got back home, got back to Holy Cross. And that's when I made a promise to God that I would never, that if he took anger out of my heart, I would never do that again. I would never let anger control my
0: life. The combat boots and that Black Panther beret, Clarence soon tossed them aside like an old costume but he did hold on to something from that time.
4: If if we could be cured of our slave mentality, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for
3: ourselves and our kind.
0: Malcolm X, with his philosophy of self-reliance and self-discipline, sounded a lot like Clarence's grandfather, that he had no reason to think of himself as oppressed and he had to help himself before he could help anyone else. That's what Clarence Thomas was taught as a child, and it's what he rediscovered at Holy Cross, and what he told the world during his confirmation hearing. Uh, And
4: and I tried to do what my grandfather said, stand up for what I believe in. And the person you have before you today is the person who was in those uh, army fatigues, combat boots, who's grown older, wiser, but no less concerned
0: about the same problems. I asked Eddie Jenkins what he thinks about who Clarence Thomas was at Holy Cross and who he is now.
1: We all like to recall those moments when when it seemed like we had idealism, when it seemed like we could do a lot for our people. And so we all miss those moments. And we all like to think that we can go back. those times to those friendships uh but we evolve and we change and we get complex and if we could just go back to that one or two moments where we could have that conversation sitting on the hill just drinking a bottle of wine and saying let's unwind this thing brother and what are the one or two or three things that you think you could do for yourself your family and your people, I wonder what he would say.
0: Next week on Slow Burn, Clarence Thomas finds his people and his politics. If you have a deeply cynical
1: view of white people and of racism, you start to calculate, what is it necessary for me to do in order to get what I want?
0: And later this season, Thomas faces accusations from several women, but not all of them get a public hearing.
5: I've always been proud of the fact that I told the truth when it was not necessarily popular to do so. It just felt like uh, an exercise in futility.
0: Slow Burn is produced by Sophie Summergrad, Sam Kim, Sophie Codner, and me, Joel Anderson. Josh Levine is the editorial director of Slow Burn. Derek John is our executive producer. This episode was edited by Josh Levine, Derek John, and Joel Meyer. Susan Matthews is Slate's executive editor. Merritt Jacob is our senior technical director. Our theme music was composed by Alexis Quadrado. Ivy Lee Simonez did the cover art. We had production help from Benjamin Payne and Savannah, Patrick Fort, Kevin Bendis, James Reddick, and Steven Steigman at KCUR. Some of the audio you heard in our show comes courtesy of the College of the Holy Cross Archives and Distinctive Collections. We couldn't make Slow Burn without support from our members, and I strongly urge you to sign up for Slate Plus today. It's only $15 for your first 3 months. Head over to slate.com/slowburn to join. You'll get all kinds of perks, including a member-exclusive episode of Slow Burn this week and every week. In this week's Plus episode, you'll hear more fascinating stories from Diane Brady, the author of Fraternity, about the Black students who enrolled at Holy Cross in 1968. She spoke about the bonds and rivalries Thomas felt with his classmates and about her personal experiences interviewing Thomas himself. Slate Plus members also get ad-free listening on this show and all Slate shows, unlimited reading on the Slate website, and more. Again, go to slate.com slowburn to sign up today. If you're looking for breaking news analysis of everything going on with the Supreme Court right now, you should subscribe to Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, hosted by Dahlia Lithwick. Amicus has new episodes every Saturday this month to tell you all about the major decisions being released this SCOTUS term. And there'll be special episodes for Slate Plus members too. Find Amicus wherever you listen. Special thanks to Michael Fletcher, Rachel Strong, and all the good folks in Savannah. Special thanks also to Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, Dahlia Lithwick, Christina Carterucci, Evan Chung, Kelly Jones, Katie Shepard, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Bill Carey, Seth Brown, Katie Rayford, Daisy Rosario, Janae Desmond Harris, Hilary Fry, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.